So grad school is like having an infant for five years. Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> Sign up today, folks. <laughs> Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, three tips for keeping your perspective and sanity in graduate school. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 40. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey, Dan. Hey, Josh. What's happening? Not much tonight. It's a late one. We're, we're getting started really late. Yeah, this might be the latest that we've ever recorded a podcast. So we're all a little sleepy. We're, we're a little sleepy. I don't think either of us are really interested <laughs> in drinking, um, which may surprise our listening audience. But that is why we have picked out a, a emerald-colored gem from the back of the fridge tonight. <laughs> That's right. This was one of those times. I know we've all been there when, you know, you need to drink a beer. You don't need to, but <laughs> it's part of your podcast <laughs> shtick. Yeah, that's right. It's just part of the protocol. And really, all you've got has been hiding in the back of the fridge for a few months. Okay. So we're really going to do this. We're doing this. So tonight, we are drinking <laughs> Heineken. <laughs> <laughs> Very dramatic <laughs> announcement. I was going to say Heineken Lager. Yeah, it says Heineken Lager beer. This okay. is the original recipe, premium quality, brewed in Holland. Uh, and we are splitting it. So down the hatch. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. That is not good. Okay. Well, you know. Um, I have to apologize to everybody listening who is still in graduate school and Heineken is still that top shelf beer. But there's so many better beers out there. Yeah, you know, Heineken, at least in my experience, this used to be my go-to beer if I wanted a nicer beer. You know, you have to remember, I'm thinking back in 2001 when I became of drinking age, which I'm totally dating myself now, but my go-to would be the Coors Light. It was a yeah. different time. It was that, a different this, beer time. This does taste like beer, but it just it yeah. tastes like the beer like my dad used to drink in the 1980s, yeah, no, probably. If I would want the good beer... I would go for the Heineken. And I still, if I'm at an event where all they have are the macro brews and it's this or the, you know, Bud Light, or the, I will go with the Heineken. But actually, Dan, I did a little research on Heineken. Oh, good. I love research. And this is pretty interesting. So in 1864, Gerard Heineken purchased a brewery in Amsterdam called De Huyberg, which means the Haystack in Amsterdam, which was a popular working class beer brand of the time. And he got his wealthy mom to buy it for him. I don't, I'm sure that was not pronounced correctly. That was really dramatic. The people would like spit out their beer if they said Dehuyberg. Dehuyberg. Uh, that sounds interesting. Uh, Mr. Heineken got his mommy to buy a brewery for him. Well, not the last person in history to have their parents loan them money, right? I guess not. But So here's one thing that I thought was cool. So after Prohibition was lifted in 1933, Heineken actually was the first European beer to be imported into the United States. Well, it is a historical night tonight. I, I think we'll probably choke this down. We'll see how this goes. This is the import of our founding fathers. There it is. <laughs> and also, you know, we drink a lot of micro brews on the show. And just the scale of this, I mean, this is this is unbelievable. So apparently 
2.74 billion liters of Heineken were produced worldwide in 2011. Wow. I think we'll probably just consume like half a billion tonight. <laughs> I mean, I can't even, can you even conceive of 2.74 billion? And it all went into green glass bottles or do you think they, they serve it on taps and things? Well, you know, you can buy those little mini kegs. That's like true. At the grocery store the now. Most of it. Good thing, good thing you did not have, have ever, one of those. Have you ever purchased one? Of, I wonder who buys those little kegs. Not me. It's <laughs> not me. Uh, we apologize to any of our Dutch listeners out there who are... I would love to know if Heineken's a big deal. You know, I was in Philadelphia recently, and everybody there drinks yingling. You can get yingling on tap at almost any bar you go to, and they claim it tastes different up in Philly than it does It's possible that, that if it's it's kegged, it may have different water, or it's... I don't know. Who knows? Well, we'll say that. But anyway, cheers, Dan. We're drinking Heineken because... That's what we got. That's what we got. All right. Well, let's get to the topic today. You found a fascinating article by Kenny Gibbs. Yeah. So, so Kenny, a uh, friend of mine, colleague of mine, I've had the fortune to to meet Kenny a few times and, and hear him speak. And you know, he is a really fascinating guy. He's a he's a guy that thinks a lot about a lot of the things that we talk about on the show. You know, graduate student training, postdoc training, and how to make it better. And just some background on Kenny. So he works at the NIH now in the National Institute of General Medical Science. Uh, he's a program analyst there, but previously he served on the board of directors for the National Postdoc Association for three years. He was a AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellow. And one thing that I think is cool, he's actually co-authored several research papers on biomedical grad student and postdoc career development and some of the decision-making that trainees um, really utilized when they're when they're thinking about their careers and their development. Um, so he's one of these people that's out there that's not just thinking about these things, but actually has spent some time researching them as well. And on top of that, he's a pretty nice guy. Yeah, it sounds like he's got the credentials to, to say something of interest to us. So yeah. let's see what he has. His, his article is titled, Three Keys for Graduate School Success. You know, I love a listicle. Yeah, I read this. Number one. three may shock you. <laughs> you won't believe number two. Uh, I thought these were really great. And so let's jump right into them. So the first was, Kenny said that PhDs are beginnings and not endings. And Deep. Yeah. And I think, I think this is actually really, really important to realize because one of the things he says is the goal of the PhD program is not the PhD itself, but gaining skills and connections necessary to execute your professional vision that brought you there in the first place. So the PhD, the degree is a means to an end, but not an end into itself. And I think that perspective is really important when you're in the middle of it, right? It is so easy to lose sight of that. You're just oh, like, yeah. oh, I just have to get that degree. And once I get it, then everything else will be great. And and the reality is you've, you've got to take that time to prepare for all of these other steps. And in fact, like many of us, you don't know exactly what those next five steps might be. Yeah, no, that's true. And it actually reminded me when I when I thought a little bit about this this week, that in some ways, PhD training and the hardships reminded me of my time having a newborn. Okay, go on. I'll, I'll follow you on this one. So you would agree you've had a newborn, especially um, you know when you have your first kid. Uh, that's a stressful time. Yes, it is. And having a child may be a goal. But also when they're one and two, <laughs> and I assume three. Uh, but I remember one of the most stressful things when I had my first kid was the newborn was really challenging in a lot of ways. You're not getting much sleep. You know, they can't talk to you and tell you why they're miserable. But you kind of get in this mindset that I can't handle this forever. Like, this is stressful, and I just can't keep doing this forever. Yeah, that I relate to that. It's it's that 
2 a.m. and then 3 a.m. and then 4 a.m. You, you keep getting up and you're just like, if this is what it's going to be like, I quit. Yeah, and, and I think what you don't have the perspective of because you haven't done it before is how quickly these phases pass and how it is really a a transient period of time. And so you can do a lot of things for a short period of time. And, you know, getting through that newborn stage, that's just a step to somewhere else that that is not quite as stressful or maybe is just stressful in a different way. But you don't have to do it forever. So grad school is like having an infant for five years. Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> I don't know if that's what I'm saying. Okay. But, but I think what I am saying is... Sign up today, folks. <laughs> is... You know, when grad school gets hard, which it inevitably will for anyone, if you feel like, and Dan, I I happen to know you felt this way because we had conversations like this, you know, when you're three, four years in and you're far enough where you can't remember the beginning, but you can't yet see the ending, one of the things that can be the most crushing is this feeling that I'm going to be here forever. This is what my life is going to be. Yeah, and and part of that is because you don't know how long it will go on. If, If it had a finite end date, then I would say, okay, I just have to do this for another six months or two years. And then you'd make the informed decision. But what if it's seven years more? Or what if it's only just two months? You just have no idea. No, it's true. And and I think the perspective that's important to have, and this is something I tell students a lot now being on the other side, is it does end, right? You will get through it. And it does get a lot better once you get on the other side. And I think, you know, just thinking about, Dan, the people we have talked to on this show who are past their training we haven't talked to a single person yet who said, oh, it's actually been a lot worse once I finished graduate school, right? Every one of them, no matter what they've done, whether they've stayed in academia and become a, a faculty member, whether they left with a master's, whether they're a consultant, whether they're an educator, they all say, you know what? My life's great now compared to, to what it was yeah, when that, I was That training. was the hard part. Well, that's the end of the show, folks. <laughs> but, you know, but I needed something, you know, with that perspective, I needed that step to get to, you know, one of the things Kenny, right. Kenny said is the degree is a tool, not the ultimate goal. And if you can frame it that way, then I think mentally you can be in a much less stressful place. Yeah. And I, uh, I took a little bit something extra maybe than, than what he even intended. I thought about the place where I work and we are a software company and I work with uh, a PhD in astrophysics I work at the PhD from civil engineering. I have one in molecular physiology. None of us are actually doing that thing that we that we invested our dissertation research in. But uh, it's you know, it's great to work with a team of people who are trained as scientists. And I think you're going to see that um, in any field that you go into, as, as long as it's technical, they're hiring people who have that kind of technical understanding. Mm-hmm. So, what was number two, Josh? Yeah, so number two, this talks about the advisor relationship, and this is something I feel like we've beaten pretty hard over the last few weeks, but but one of the things Kenny said was go to a school and work with an advisor where you can see yourself doing well as a person. And so he says, you won't do well as a scholar if you don't feel whole as a person. So often we're drawn to the biggest name institutions or advisors. There's nothing necessarily wrong with these places or people, but just realize that if it's not a place where you will do well as a person— None of that will matter. Yeah, and I don't even think, I mean, he, he mentions working with an advisor, um, but I think his point here is really much more broad about looking at how people are either thriving or, you know, being choked and depressed and sad and um, noticing those things and, and recognizing it's not going to be different for you. So if you see everybody is miserable, don't expect that you're going to be the one that sails through and has a great experience. Yeah, and it's really tempting, and I've seen students do this, where 
you know, they're really drawn to the big name lab, the cool sounding science. They see the warning signs, they see the red flags, you know, the PI who doesn't happen to be there, doesn't respond to their emails very quickly when they're thinking about joining the lab. The student seems stressed, but they think, well, I'll be different. This is not going to be this way for me. And there is that chance, but but you're rolling the dice at that point. So uh, you have to think about, do, do you want to be the person who maybe is the outlier at the miserable school? Or do you want to be the person who is firmly in the middle of the curve at, at the school where everybody's really productive and happy? Yeah, and you know we've talked about it this way before, but you are a scientist, so use that scientific thinking, that problems, those problem-solving skills in the lab selection process. Gather data about outcomes of other people who are doing the things you want to do. And, and one of the things Kenny mentions, which I think is actually useful to do, is kind of figure out who you are and look at not only how people in general are doing, but how are people like you or in your situation doing? So, you know, for example, let's say you... For me, like, how are all the super geniuses faring at this (laughs) university with charm and good looks? That's That's the ones I want to pay attention to. Yeah, so uh, figure the opposite situation. What do you mean people like me? Uh, How how are all these sarcastic people doing? Yeah, exactly. Cynical people. They're doing quite well. Thank you very much. Oh, they're doing great. Oh, really, really having (laughs) a great great. time at this school. Um, Yeah, for example, one thing that popped out at me is let's say you have a family. You're married or you have children. It might be different, you know, not just looking at how do the grad students in general fare, but are there other, actually, are there other students or people with families at that institution or in that lab or in that department. Yeah, it's a different gig. It can be very um, excluding to be in a, in a lab where everybody's 22 and they go out to the bars together every afternoon and you've got to rush to daycare. Um, it can just be a different experience. And, and those differences can kind of add up to kind of hurt feelings and, and a lot of other issues. Yeah. And there might be other environments that are much more conducive to your current stage of life or We've talked a lot about gender bias on the show, um, racial bias. I mean, let's say you're, you're a female student. Don't just look in general at how students are doing, but talk to other female grad students. What's their experience like in that lab, in that department? And the more that you can gather that information before you commit to a place or a lab, you know, the better off you'll be. You can do a little more forecasting and make an informed decision. Um, you know, an example, Dan, just the other day... Um, I talked to a group of former students I had, and all of these students happened to be from ethnic minorities, and all four of them had gone to different graduate schools. And, you know, it was interesting to hear them talking because they had vastly different experiences depending on where they were. A couple of the students said they felt very much part of a group uh, where they were and that, you know, in general, they were pretty happy. A couple other students said they were really struggling a little bit because they felt a little bit isolated um, at the institutions they were at. And that's one of the things Kenny talked about in his article was, you know, the importance of finding those groups or at least having those available to you as a support network or an anchoring for you um, when times do get hard. That's right. Community is extremely important for humans. We are social animals. And if you have to go it alone, it's not going to be fun or easy. That is right. You know, one thing he talked about too is, you know, you're going to be doing the research thing, but to help you get through, it's also important to make sure you're participating in things that anchor you as a person outside of the lab, outside of graduate school. And, you know, I think back on on our time, Dan, and, you know, we had a strong friend group that got together regularly and they weren't all scientists. We stayed really active in the fire juggling community. (laughs) 
or whatever. The hacky sack yeah, circle. Right. And, you know, I thought it was pretty important. You know, when I think back on my time in graduate school, to have friends and, and people in my life that weren't just in the grad school life, in the science world, uh, just to give me some perspective and to yeah, keep maybe, my head out of the sand a little bit. It pops that bubble that, that you can get into where everybody and everything is lab and science and you forget that there's actually a world beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so stay stay grounded. Don't forget about the types of things you like and that you're drawn to outside of your professional life. Fire juggling, I recommend it. <laughs> so the last thing, this is a more practical tip, I would say, and that is manuscripts and theses only get written when you write them. That sounds challenging. Because I've noticed a lot of manuscripts and theses get written, and I have not written them. <laughs> oh, I think he's mean, he means the ones on my own research. I think so. Okay, fair uh, and, and so one Could have been more clear. That's true. Uh, one of the things he says is, I've found that if I just write phrases or clauses, I get the momentum to keep going. It's a lot easier to go from something to something better than from zero to perfect. Yeah, I think this is really good advice. There are all sorts of resources for trying to deal with writer's block. And I think most of them are write something, just just put something on paper, outline it, and then fill in the details. Or, you know, keep writing until you get to a place where you know the next thing to write and don't stop till you get there because then you'll be able to pick it back up when you come to it. Um, but yeah, you have to put something on paper because the blank sheet is your enemy. Yeah, it, and that's so true. It's just like starting really is the hardest part. Um, you know, one of the things he mentioned was when he wrote his thesis, he said he went to the library four hours a day, nine to one, spent 50 minutes writing without stopping, not allowed to look at my phone, I turned off the wireless, no distractions. If I needed a paper, I would delay downloading, then a 10-minute break, then do it again. That you sounds know, a lot that like... sounds like something I've heard of. The Pomodoro Technique. Episode blah, blah, blah. We'll have to go look up. <laughs> go to the search bar yeah. and search for Pomodoro Technique. You know, one thing that, one thing that I heard about, Dan... Obviously, I've never actually put this into practice, but it keeps coming back to me when I was a postdoc. Um, one of the leaders in my, my postdoc program, she mentioned that she would always write one hour a day. And so, you know, think about what your most productive time of the day, I think typically the first part of your day was just spend one hour writing because I think we almost always have something we could be writing or something we're thinking about that we should be writing and just say, I'm going to spend that one hour or maybe even that 30 minutes every day getting into that habit and just sitting down and writing, not worrying about perfection, but getting words on paper. It's probably worth, if you run out of things to write, you can write a draft of what you think the research might do. And that will help inform you about which experiments you need to start next. There's, yeah. there's some creative process right there. Absolutely. That can really help you to organize your thoughts by, by getting them out on, on paper. Episode 15. Simple tricks for time management, the Pomodoro technique. Yeah, check out the Pomodoro technique. That's a good one. That one's really revolutionized my, especially my writing, because, you know, focus is so hard to do. Multitasking can be the enemy. That's why I can't get a hold of you at all hours. Well, you got to call. Respond. When I tweet, you should respond. <laughs> you got to reach out during that five-minute break okay, in between I'll... Pomodoros. I need your Pomodoro clock to be Wi-Fi enabled so I can see when you're using it. And people who have not listened to that episode have no idea what we're talking about. Um, so anyway, those were the three tips. PhD is a beginning, not an end. Find an advisor, a place where you can see yourself doing well as a person, and find ways to just get the writing process started without worrying about perfection. I thought these were great tips. You know, I find these have all been true and are important reminders uh, for all of our trainees out there. We'll have to have Kenny on this show and see if he has some other ideas for us. Sounds good, Kenny. If you're out there, 
tweet us. And you can find Kenny. He is uh, he's around the the webosphere. He's on Twitter at Kenny Gibbs PhD. Awesome. Open invitation, Kenny. We'd love to talk to you. All right, Dan. What do you have for us on the etymology puzzle front? What indeed? Well, I have an update from last week. Oh, uh, good. So our winner last week was from Stony Brook, and you made the joke uh, about them being the sea wolves and asking what what is a sea wolf. Do you remember this? I do remember. Do we have some clarification on that front? Yep. Uh, we got an email back from Jonathan, and he said, uh, nobody knows what a sea wolf is. But they have T-shirts that on the front say, what's a seawolf? And on the back, it says, I'm a seawolf. So about the least helpful etymology I think we've presented on this show. Does, does that mean that I also am a seawolf? If you wear that shirt. I don't think you are naturally, though. I got to get one of those shirts. Somebody send me a seawolf shirt. I'll wear it. All right. So uh, hopefully this week we'll have a little more clarity. But uh, the clue last week was this botanical substance makes the springtime landscape look like it was dusted with finely milled flour. Now, if you're listening in Boston, you're thinking snow, and that is not true. Yeah, it's snowing right now. It's so crazy to me. The actual answer for the puzzle was pollen. Um, down here in the south, where it is actually spring, you know, the landscape gets covered with pine tree pollen. Everything turns yellow. It's disgusting. It's everywhere. So gross. It is really gross. So it comes from uh, the Latin word pollen which is just mill dust or fine flour and it's related to the word polenta if you didn't know that oh yeah i like polenta yeah so there you go pollen polenta is not gross no polenta is delicious uh it it was used to describe the uh, fertilizing element of flowers by your good friend linnaeus in 1751 there you have it do we have a winner this week we do Catherine from rice university so uh, we'll be sending you your amazon gift card Catherine. congratulations good job Catherine. thanks for listening and our puzzle for next week, when you are prepared. I'm ready. Okay. This class of drugs can take you on a trip to reveal your mind and soul. I'll read it one more time. This class of drugs can take you on a trip to reveal your mind and soul. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described with a clue. And once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com and I'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. The comment we made earlier reminded me, I discovered this week that we have a search bar on our website. I don't know how you missed this, but okay. No, I don't Did know. you use it? Yeah, it's actually pretty useful. Did it work? Yeah. Fantastic. It worked, it worked pretty well. So yeah, we've done 40 episodes. Yeah, that's a Can lot. Can you believe it? Yeah. Maybe you're, you're new to the show, you're coming into this, and there's something specific you want to know if we've talked about on the show. Go to the search bar. If you're a postdoc, type in postdoc. If you want to know about careers, you can type that in. If you want to know about time management, put that in there, and you'll you'll find the episodes where we've covered those. So, yeah. If you scroll down a little farther, you'll also see uh, specific topics that we've tagged each episode. So if you if you need to know about admissions or diversity or lab culture, uh, there are topics about that. And if you're interested in beer, you can always search for beer. That's true. We need to get up a beer page. That's one of the, the things lacking on the website. We should have a long list. Yeah, we wanted to do a beer shelf where we put uh, all the beers we've sampled on the show. Although it hasn't just been beer, as you know. That is true, but we'll be... And I would argue this isn't one either. <laughs> 
Sorry, Heineken. All right. Well, Dan, it's been a fun show as always. Great talking to you. If you've got something you would like for us to discuss on the show or feedback on a past episode, we'd love to hear it. So send us an email, podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd or contact us on Facebook. You can also leave comments on each episode show note. There's a comment section down below. That is right, Dan. You put you put a lot of work into those show notes pages. I know I don't tend to read show notes pages for podcasts I listen to, but I would encourage all of our listeners, check out the show notes. They're pretty witty and amusing. Every once in a while, I find something stupid to say. All right, Dan. Well, it is late, so let's get out of here, and we'll be back at you next week. See you next week, Josh. <laughs>